Happy New Year, belated. <laughs> I, uh, it's only because I, 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 I visit you guys once a month. Um, but I hope it's still, I was thinking on the way over, how many days should pass before a Happy New Year becomes, I don't know, inappropriate or... Um, but Happy New Year nonetheless. Um, in thinking about what text to preach on today, I thought, you know, in the new year, the, the new year is a, a, is a very good time for, for us all to, to reflect back on what happened in the past, but also a really good time for us to look forward, to plan, and maybe have some kind of goals or, or purposes for the new year. Um, so I thought, okay, well, let's try to pick a verse uh, that would be fitting or helpful for, for this church. Last week also happened to be the, um, the, the election for the Speaker of the House. Um, I don't know how many of you did it, but I did. Uh, I, I listened to some of the speeches on the floor, riveting, riveting stuff. <laughs> I tried to listen to it right before going to sleep, and, and a lot of times it helped. Um, there was one person that got up. Um, who said in his speech, he quoted from the book of Timothy. You remember that? Okay, good. He quoted from the book of Timothy. He actually quoted from 2 Timothy, but a verse that's very similar to the verse that we're going to talk about today. So as I thought about that, well, first I thought, well, what a, how, how interesting it is that in this country and in this body of people. Uh, I agree with uh, Dutch. You know, we, we live in a blessed place where we are able to worship without persecution and constraints, even though that might be ending or might be in the process of ending, starting from that body uh, of legislature. I thought how interesting it was that one of our leaders got up and unabashedly quoted from scripture. Uh, and he was doing it in a good way. Um, so I thought, okay, uh, let's talk about this verse. Uh, it's not the verse that he cited, but it's a very similar verse in the same, uh, letters that, that Paul wrote. Uh, so that is why, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, first Timothy six, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. My hope today is to give this church, Christ Church, you, um, some hope, maybe some goals, some purposes, some motivation going into the new year. Uh, basically, we're just going to talk about this in a good, uh, reformed, Presbyterian way. Three points. Uh, first, we're going to define what is a fight. Okay, what does Paul mean by fight the good fight of faith? And then we're going to talk about why Paul describes it as a fight. Why is he telling Timothy to, to fight? And then last, we're going to talk about why is this a good fight? Why is this a good fight? So first, what is this fight? Look again at verse 12. There are two imperatives 
Uh, we talked this morning about eisegesis. Eisegesis is when you read stuff into scripture. The opposite is the better way, the right way, called exegesis, when you explain the words of scripture. And that's what we're going to do. There are two imperatives. These are commands, not options, not, well, if you can avoid it, avoid it. But if you must, you know, push and shove into these situations, then do them. No, these are commands. By the way, uh, if you look in back, uh, look down in a, a little bit in verse 14, this is why we read the verses before and after. Paul says, you keep this command without spot. You must keep this command without spot. That's his charge to Timothy. What is the command? It's this verse in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The two imperators are fight and lay hold. That word fight uh, sounds like our English word for agony. Um, a lot of English words have roots in Latin, which have roots in Greek. And so this word for fight uh, actually sounds a lot like our word for agony. Um, it's actually the, the word that's associated most commonly in that time period with athletics. Uh, if you think about running, long distance running or sprinting, that is agony. Yes, right? When, you're, when your chest and your abdomen starts to, to, start, start to feel pain. But I'm not a runner. Okay, so I've never actually experienced this myself. Usually I just kind of slow down to a walk. But I've heard that once, as a runner, once you push through that initial agony of not being able to, able to breathe, that's when you start to reap the rewards of this, this, this painful procedure, exercise, the struggle. Okay, that's what it means to fight. It's not literally a call for us to get into fisticuffs. And that's important because if you look at verse 11, the previous verse, Paul actually tells Timothy, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. You can't really love somebody if you're fighting somebody physically. Patience. You can't be patient if you're fighting somebody physically in gentleness. Okay, so Timothy is supposed to pursue these things, and yet he's supposed to fight for something. Not fisticuffs. It's not calling us to get into physical fights because of our faith. It's merely saying faith is not always an easy process. There's going to be agony. There's going to be struggle, like exercise, like running. There's going to be pain involved, but we are to push through fight. That's the first imperative. Then Paul uses another imperative, lay hold. Uh, it's a more intense word than just simply holding or, or, or taking or grasping on to something. Actually, this word is better translated as seize. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a desperateness to this word. There's an intenseness to this word. Actually, it's a word that's not often used in the New Testament. The, one of the only other places where this word is used was when 
Jesus appeared to his disciples. They were on a boat. There was a big storm. And Jesus started to, middle of the night, and Jesus started to walk across the water to the boat. The disciples see Jesus, and Peter decides to get out of the boat to start walking on water towards Jesus. And he does so for a few steps, but then his faith fails. He begins to sink into the water, and the scripture says Jesus then laid a hold of Peter. Think about that situation. You're, you're, you're sinking into the ocean. And it's not like sinking into quicksand where it's a slow kind of sink. You're, you're falling into the ocean. And Jesus reaches down and, 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 and grabs Peter, seizes him, lays a hold of him, and pulls him up. It's interesting. It's interesting that God would now use this word for how we are to lay hold of eternal life. Think of the intenseness. Think of the desperation. Think of the want to ness of this command, right? We have to lay hold on eternal life. We need to fight the good fight of faith. We need to lay hold on eternal life. These are the two commands. And as I said a couple of verses later, this is the charge, the command that Paul charges Timothy. You must keep this command, verse 14, without spot, without blame, until our Lord Jesus is appearing. And then Paul reminds Timothy of how great an authority Jesus is. He is the Lord of lords, the only potentate, king of kings, who dwells in unapproachable light. So don't mess this up. You better do this. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. This verse really throws a wrench into this idea of prosperity gospel. Um, I think, uh, what was it, this week? I forget the date. Was it Wednesday when the elders prayed? Uh, we mentioned how it just happens to be in this area, there's a lot of churches that preach prosperity gospel. What does prosperity gospel teach? It's a false teaching. What do they teach? Well, Life is really supposed to be free of all kinds of suffering, and God is really there to help you have good health, have wealth, have joy, have happiness. And that's basically all God is there to do is to, to give you good things, and you're supposed to just enjoy pros prosperity. Well, no. <laughs> um, the Bible doesn't teach that. And it's not even that the Bible says, well, there might be suffering out there, and you should try your best to avoid all kinds of suffering and all kinds of pain and all kinds of agony. And if you must, as a last resort, deal with these things and then deal with them. Okay, no. Here, the imperatives are clear. Fight the good fight of faith. That's a command. Fight. Not to avoid. Not to you know, run away from a fight just to have some kind of calm and, um, you know, avoid that type of struggle. Tells us to fight. Tells us to lay hold on eternal life. Uh, this verse also throws a big wrench into uh, a common problem that we have in the American church. Uh, this type of consumerism Christianity where you know, 
a lot of folks, it seems like, all they, they think all God wants us to do is to go to church on Sundays, hopefully not a church where the pastor slams them with the word of God, where they can just sit there, maybe listen to some good stories, have a good few laughs, do their minimal part, and then feel good about themselves, and then, you know, live the rest of the week, you know, in their own lives. Um, no. Uh, we are commanded by God, this Lord of Lords, this only potentate, to fight for something, to lay a hold of something. Now, why? Why is faith called a fight? Okay, that's the second point. Why is faith called a fight? There are two reasons. First reason, because faith, the true faith, the gospel is under attack. No one knew this better than Paul. And that's the reason we read Acts 19, Paul's experience in Ephesus, in this church that he is now going to instruct Timothy to, to lead. But it's not just in Acts 19. You know your biblical histories well. It's everywhere Paul went. Everywhere Paul went, there was opposition to the gospel. The gospel was under attack in Maybe except for Berea, maybe except for, you know, I, I'd have to, you know, you'd have to go through Acts. But, but the, the majority of the places where he was in revolted against the gospel. In fact, in Acts 19, we read a little bit of it. Um, we read verse 9 that when Paul went and baptized those disciples who, who didn't have a clear understanding of baptism, true baptism in Christ. Uh, many believed, or well, 12 believed, but then verse 9 says, some were hardened and did not believe and spoke evil of Paul and those disciples, just 12 people. Why would you speak evil of just a small handful of people? Uh, Acts 19, Paul's time in Ephesus, later on, we didn't read this, but later on talks about, and you know this, that famous riot that happens in the whole city, where not just now, not just the Jews, but all the Gentiles, now they all get up and, you know, they, they, they cause a riot in the city. Great is Diana, <laughs> the, the, the matron goddess of our city, and down with these Christians, right? And they all gather in the market, and Paul wants to rush into the market to fight for the gospel. But then some disciples with cooler heads says, no, 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 look, <laughs> not here, we're going to you know, stow your way and, and, and send you somewhere else. The gospel is under attack. That is why Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Now, most of the examples in, in Acts um, happen where attacks come from outside of the church. But Paul was also familiar with attacks on the gospel inside the church. And it's interesting in Mark's um, reading of the pardon that it comes from the book of Galatians. Remember what happened in that church in Galatia. There was an attack on the gospel within the church. Galatians 2, verse 14. This is Paul writing about his encounter with Peter. Of all the people where an attack on the gospel would come from, it comes from Peter. 
This is Paul writing. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, it was under attack. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as a Jew, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Remember the, the, the issue that was there in the church in Galatia, that Paul was preaching the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And there came these Judaizers in this church saying, well, no, not really. After faith, you've got to add on circumcision. You've got to add on obedience to the, the law of Moses. And, and Peter actually fell in with that, and Paul called him out to his face. Remember, this was early on in, in Paul's career, right? This was when he was still planting churches. He hadn't written any books yet, right? Today, for us, you know, in, in terms of the, if I, if you, if I could allow, be allowed to use this in terms of the pantheon of church fathers, right? Peter would be up here and Paul would be up here as well, right? In Galatians, when Paul was calling out Peter in that church for attacking the gospel, Paul was a newcomer. He was a no-name. He was a no-name missionary, right? This was before his visit to the Jerusalem council, right? Peter was an apostle, the rock. And here, Paul, this no-name missionary, was calling out. He was fighting for the faith, an attack on the faith within the church. Sometimes we think Paul does this because he's a firebrand and that's just a personality, you know, gets into fights. We forget that that was what Paul was before his conversion, right, when he persecuted Christians. But after his conversion, he changed. Now listen, listen to how Paul describes his own ministry in other places. In First in Thessalonians, when he was with the church in Thessalonica, he was as gentle as a nursing mother to them. First Thessalonians 2.7. When he was in the church with, uh, in Corinth, he said, I didn't come to you with, with, with words of wisdom, but I came to you in weakness, fear, and in trembling. First Corinthians 2.3. In the chapter after Acts 19, where he meets the Ephesian elders for the last time, the, the, the Bible describes tears. Paul weeps tears. Now, that doesn't sound like a guy who is, you know, itching for a fight everywhere he goes. You know, Paul is discipling Timothy, and we know Timothy was a timid, gentle man, right? And Paul has to remind Timothy, don't be timid. I don't think a timid man would, would take a, 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 an abrasive sort of personality as, you know, a spiritual father. No, Paul didn't fight because of temperament. He didn't fight because that was, he had a temper. He fought because he was bold, because he had convictions, because he was firm. You know, when, when the gospel is attacked inside the church, that's where it becomes hardest for us to fight for faith. Because there is this thing called people worship, where if someone in the church especially if they have a name, if they have books written under their name, if they are seminary professors, 
because they are heads of large organization, church organizations, or large churches, and they say something, and we know it is contrary to the gospel, it's hard for us to fight. It's hard for us to fight for faith, even in ourselves. You know, when, when John Piper, big name, when John Piper says, that there is an initial salvation by faith, but there is a final salvation by faith and works, and that's clearly wrong. When, uh, I mean, we brought up the PCA, when in their last, I think it was the last General Assembly or the one before, when Tim Keller gets out, and he says that this is stuff going on behind the scenes, but on Twitter, and I was following that, and whatever Tim Keller tweeted on Twitter in support of the ordination of gay men, whatever he tweeted out on Twitter, that was said on the floor by other folks in that General Assembly. And no one calls them out. No one fights for faith. And these are elders and pastors of churches. You know, when gospel is attacked, inside the church. That's when it becomes imperative. It becomes a command for us, ourselves, to fight for the faith ourselves. The second way that faith is called a fight is because of sanctification. And we know that, right? Sanctification is that grace, that, that work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Dutch, I don't know if you're working towards ordination, but this is the, the, the ordination <laughs> exam answer to the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is the act of God, the one-time act of God. That's why it's called an act, not a work. It's a one-time act of God to you know, impute our guilt onto Jesus, to impute his righteousness onto us, where by that act, we are declared righteous. Not just not guilty, but righteous with the righteousness of God in front of God. Justified by faith. Sanctification, as opposed to act, one-time act, is a work. It's an inward work of the Holy Spirit. Rather than something outside imputed to us, it's an inward work of the Spirit of God to, to slowly change us from the old man to the new man where we now have not perfect, never perfect, but we now have a righteousness, a holiness of our own that God works within us, right? It's different from justification in that sanctification. God grows a righteousness that belongs to me. But in justification, Jesus's righteousness is imputed to my account, right? So that's sanctification. But if we know sanctification... We know it's an up and down process, right? It's never a smooth slope. Um, it's always up and down. Hopefully what happens is in the long run, in this up and down, it will have an upward trend. But it's an up and down process. That is why sanctification is a fight. That is why faith is a fight. Because when you fall down, you got to get up. <laughs> Well, first you got to realize you fell down, right? And you have to admit your faults 
you know, come to God. That is why when we read uh, Psalm 51, that is so precious of a psalm. That is David working out one of the times when he fell. And he's trying to come back up, right, through sanctification. Sanctification is a fight because the Word of God says we are naturally opposed to sanctification. 1 Corinthians 2.14, this is a work that is unnatural to us in our old man. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Yes, it's full. When you guys go out and do your street, street preaching and you call on people to repent, how many of the people that you meet say, wow, what a great idea for me to just repent and be declared righteous and receive salvation. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. How many of you get that reaction, right? The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We read Joshua 24, right? That, that famous plaque that some people have in their homes, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, right? That's Joshua talking. But I, we, I, we wanted to read that whole entire section because what you notice in Joshua 24 is, the people are like, yes, okay, fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll worship God. And Joshua says, how many times? No, you won't. I know you won't. And there's a very interesting verse within there where the people affirm to Joshua, yes, yes, okay, we will serve God. Yes, okay, we will serve God. And then Joshua says, fine, then get rid of all the idols that are already in your tent. He knows they're not serious. And then finally, he sets up this rock says, you're witnesses against yourself. This rock is a witness against yourself. I'm a witness against yourself. God is a witness against you. And then what happens in the next book? Judges. Uh, you could say that the entire history of Israel was a struggle in sanctification. They didn't do well. It was just always this up and down, right? The book of Judges, the book of Samuel, Kings, David, <laughs> even. Right, One moment up, really close with the Lord. Another moment down, really bad with the Lord. We read Psalm 2, where it talks about the kings of the world raging against God the sovereign. Well, that happens to all of us, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2. All of us are not able to discern the things of the Spirit. We need God's help. That's sanctification, and it's a fight. It's not easy when you have to admit your wrongs and your faults. It's not easy to, it's a struggle, isn't it? Kind of like exercise, getting rid of ingrained sin, whatever that is. Right? There's always one or two sins in all of us that's really, really hard to get rid of. It's a fight. It's agonizing. It's a struggle to get rid of it. But we are called, these are imperatives, we are called to fight. Last but not least, why is this a good fight? This is a good fight because whatever is precious is worth fighting for. Okay, look back at verse 12, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on 
eternal life. That's the object. That's the precious thing. Why we fight, why we're supposed to try to lay hold. It's because the end, the goal is precious. It's eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When you're fighting for the faith, whether it's at 69th Street Station and you're preaching and nobody's listening to you and you're getting rejected, that's still a good fight because what you are trying to impart to those people is the gift of eternal life. It's precious. It's a good fight. When the gospel is being attacked inside the church and you feel like an odd, <laughs> you are a scoundrel, right? You're kicked out of church. People look down on you. People think you're a troublemaker, you know, disrespecter of persons. Okay, that's always brought up in, in church dispute, right? You disrespect me as a person. Well, you disrespected the gospel. And people do that to you. Why is it still worth it? Why is it a good fight? Because you are protecting the gift, the message of eternal life, right? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. When you're struggling in your sanctification, and it's hard, it's the 50th time, it's the, 100, it's the 200th time that I've had to pick myself up from the same thing that I just did last week. Why is that worth it? Why is it a good fight? Why do you continue? Because you are, through God's work in you, you're working out this holiness within yourself that one day in eternal life, you will be able to present to the Lord and say, and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Right? I'm not saying, you know, don't get me wrong. We're not justified on the basis of that. We're justified because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us, but our own holiness, God commands it, God works it, and he bears his fruit, and that brings glory to God, and that is something eternal, that is something precious. When was the last time you fought for something? You know, I'm not even talking about, you know, something faith-related or, or the gospel, just, just in general, when was the last time you really fought for something, that you really struggled for something? <laughs> okay. Um, I, I like dogs. I like animals. But, you know, to be honest, I'm a little bit scared of big dogs, especially big dogs that are, like, out of control. That's me. But when we're out walking my son, you know, somewhere, and there comes, you know, towards us, anyone with a big dog or a big animal, I instinctively will start, will put myself physically between my son, my wife, and that animal. Not, not saying that animal has ever, you know, come at us, but instinctively, I will do that, and I will have no fear for whatever possible thing that comes. Why? Because they are precious, my son and my wife. Okay. That, <laughs> I was trying to think of examples. That was the most recent example that I could think of. Okay. When was the last time you fought for something? God says that we are to fight the good fight of faith. 
that we are to lay hold on eternal life. May that be this church's goal, mission, purpose for this new year. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, these very direct and very clear uh, commands uh, for us to fight for faith, for us to lay hold on eternal life. Lord, we confess that we live in a world where it's sometimes too comfortable, and we get this idea that uh, being your child and being a Christian is uh, supposed to be just this you know, painless and comfortable walk through life without roughing any feathers or uh, you know, shaking the boat, so to speak. But, but Lord, uh, you, you call us to, to, to fight, not a physical fight, but to be firm and to be bold and to seize and grasp and, 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 and to protect your word, the gospel, the precious good news of eternal life. Lord, help us to do this in our lives each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.